You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and hear what you have spoken to us in your word. Speak peace and comfort to your people. Help us to hear the gospel and rest and receive you alone for our salvation. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're studying the last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote, both to his protege, Timothy, a young pastor uh, who's in a large city and cult- central cultural hub, the city of Ephesus, and also Paul's last, letter, last words to the church. Last week we saw how Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering as the way that Timothy is to join Paul in ministry now, we, we know from church history, if you're a student of church history, we know that the, in the first century in Rome, the very first Christians were often killed and persecuted and thrown in prison for preaching that Jesus is Lord. In Rome, you had to say that Caesar was Lord, and Christians say Jesus is Lord, so they were persecuted for, for that. So it's profound when, we, when we're able to see this that Paul is saying in the midst of that cultural pressure, don't fear, don't fear what the culture may do to you for not succumbing to it, no matter how intense, no matter how horrible it may be. But what does Paul say? He says, join in the hardship. Paul's words are challenging. And if we're honest, they might even feel kind of cold to some of us, particularly to us modern Western people. Because, let's be honest, our culture is a, is a comfort and convenience-seeking culture, more than any other society in the history of the world, which is actually quite a, a new cultural development. Every other society in history has had some idea, some philosophy of, in the, of the purpose of suffering, but in modern Western secular culture, there, there really isn't, isn't one. So when Paul says to join, that's profound. And if we're looking closely at Paul's words, we can see this. Paul is in prison. He's a Roman citizen. His own country has imprisoned him, not because he disobeyed God, but because he actually obeyed God. And he's saying to Timothy, join me. Share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because suffering, Paul says, is inevitable. No one can escape it. Both because following God, Jesus tells us, can lead us into suffering, but also just the pains and the aches of this life we know brings suffering. But if there is a hope and a love that goes beyond this life, then suffering actually can have meaning. If there is a hope that goes beyond this life, Christianity says suffering does not have the final word over you, which means 
that you not only can endure suffering, but you could actually learn to embrace it. So let's look at how Paul tells Timothy not just to join him, but tells Timothy how he can actually learn how to suffer. So let's look at two things this morning. First, to see this, we need, we need a pattern to follow. And second, we need power. So pattern and power. First, let's do pattern. Paul, in this text, gives us three pictures of what the pattern looks like. Three images. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So first, let's do the soldier. Soldiers are enlisted by their commanding officer to serve. A good soldier would follow orders and doesn't just do so, however, out of sheer obligation. But look at verse 4. They have a motivation to please the one who enlisted them. There's a motivation there to serve. This, what, what, what this means, what Paul is saying, is that a soldier is faithful. A soldier is faithful. The language that Paul is using here is to be faithful by having a single focus. Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits, it says, can mean a few things, but the main thing that that means is what Paul is saying is, don't get distracted. Be faithful to the cause. Be faithful to serve. What does all this mean? It means to embrace suffering is to seek not your own good, not your own pleasure, but the good of others and to please God. Faithfulness is turning your mind and your heart toward him. You see, we've got competing desires and motives within us. There's stuff that crowds our hearts because we make things that shouldn't be ultimate into something ultimate within our own hearts, and we're distracted because our affections become torn. What the Bible tells us is our desires actually are bent away from God, and they're bent towards ourselves, our natural position is not to serve God and to serve others, not even to see God in others, but to serve and only see ourselves. And in the midst of suffering, whatever you ascribe ultimate value and worth to in those conflicting desires will rise to the surface more so than at any other time in your life. You see, suffering exposes what we truly put our worth and meaning in and ascribe our ultimate value to. In other words, suffering exposes within us what we are ultimately faithful to. Here's what I mean by this. If your ultimate worth is being successful, then what will happen to you when you suffer job loss? If your ultimate worth is having obedient children, what will happen to you when you suffer their disobedience? If your ultimate worth is your intellect, you'll always be on the brink of feeling like you'll be found out and being a fraud. If your reputation is where you, you rest your ultimate worth and value in, what happens when someone disagrees with you? What happens to you? If you ascribe ultimate worth to something non-ultimate, your heart will succumb to the fear and the failure and the shame and the guilt that comes when those things are ultimately tested. And suffering, like no other time in our life, brings those things to the surface. It shows us what we put our ultimate trust in. It shows us ultimately what we're faithful to. But if your ultimate worth is in something ultimate, despite your circumstances, and even despite how you feel, which seems absolutely foreign to us modern Western people, you will be so firmly planted 
and grounded and focused on pleasing the one who enlisted you, the civilian pursuits will will seem like nothing in comparison. They'll be completely secondary. You won't want those secondary things to take up any space in your heart. See, 1 Peter 4 gives us an image of this. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says that suffering is like metal being thrown into a forge so that all the impurities can be melted away. That's what suffering does to us. It heats us up so that the impurities can be exposed and melted away. As, the, as it's heated up, the, the impurities melt away and they rise to the surface. They're exposed. And what you are left with is something that's more pure and stronger than it was before. Being faithful is being focused on what is ultimate and letting what's not melt away in the forge. And the only place that can happen is in the forge, is in the fire. We need to see God who plants us and grounds our worth, not in what is impure, but what is pure. If we can see this, then we can see that suffering ultimately is not meaningless because something's being produced. Something is happening. Suffering actually can make us better. It can make you ultimately more like Jesus. Second, the image of an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So at first glance, that might seem kind of moralistic. You get the prize you deserve, you just got to work hard for it, right? Well, the Bible is not opposed to hard work and being wise with our efforts at all. But just look at the life of Paul, who is awaiting execution for being obedient to God. He does all the right things, and he ends up in this place. So here's what this metaphor means. It means the way to glory is through great struggle and great pain. Let me explain. An athlete who is serious about winning, who is is seriously disciplined and effective in their training, they know how to push and push themselves so that they can compete at the highest level. This is what Paul means when he's saying according to the rules. He's talking about training. An athlete knows there are no shortcuts. There's only grit, sweat, blood, and hard work. An athlete knows, a, a serious athlete knows the way to glory. The way to receiving the crown for competing is through the suffering. In other words, the way to glory is through the self-sacrifice and discipline associated with the costs of the training. What Paul is really saying here is that the true crown is given to the one who submits to self-sacrifice, who embraces suffering. That is the athlete who receives the crown. You say, how in the world is something like that possible? And why would anybody want to submit themselves to self-sacrifice in a life like that? Let me tell you. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If anyone should come after me, he should deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. See, Christianity is is profoundly other-centered, other-looking. It's about denying oneself, not to serve oneself, but to serve others, to please God and embrace suffering because ultimately through it, there is glory. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, this is what Paul says, but far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Paul actually has a whole list of accomplishments that he easily could have gloried in. He says that he is a Jew of the highest degree and lays out all of his his accolades in Philippians chapter 3, but Paul does not do that. What does Paul glory in? He glories not in himself, he glories in Christ's glory, which is where? In the cross. Christianity says that God is a God who gives of himself. He comes not to to be served, but to serve. The nature of Christianity is to submit yourself to self-sacrifice for the sake of another. We see that profoundly in the person of Jesus. See, Christianity says that God is powerful enough to orchestrate our circumstances in ways beyond what we can understand. And he's also personal enough to know our experiences in the same way that we do. And actually, not just sympathize, but empathize with us. Why? Because we must see the one who suffered for us. He became just like us. He experienced the same miseries that we all do. You see, you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus loses friends. His family betrays him. He watches children pass away. He sees sickness and disease take people he loves from him. He sees political unrest. He physically is tortured to the point of death so that through his death, he receives what? He receives glory. The gospel says that through his suffering for others, for another, the gospel says that through Jesus' suffering, by his very wounds, you and I can be healed. You and I can actually be healed. Our suffering can be healed because he suffered for us. You see, God is glorified in the cross, and we can be healed through the cross by, oh, because Jesus, Jesus through the, cl- the cross and the suffering of the cross overcomes death. And through death, what does he bring? He brings life. He brings life. George MacDonald put it like this. The Son of God suffered unto death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his. You see, if God suffered, if God actually suffered and he overcomes death, you see, the gospel says our suffering will be like his. And that our death will be like his. It will be a portal into a resurrected life. Into the very glory, the very glory of God. You see, the key is this, to see this. The athlete's suffering is actually engulfed by the glory that they receive. You see that? The suffering is engulfed by the glory that they receive. You see, Tolkien put it like this. A priest once asked asked Tolkien in a letter why, why he was so casual about suffering and trials and ultimately death. And Tolkien answers, and he says this. This is what Tolkien said. He wrote the priest back and he says, what punishment from God is not a gift? What punishment from God is not a gift? What Tolkien's getting at is that the glory of Jesus' resurrection, a bodily resurrection, a real resurrection, instantly makes what seemed like a punishment turn into a gift. It seems utterly cold for Paul to say, does it not if we're honest? It seems cold for Paul to say, the the current circumstances, the suffering that you face face right now is not even worth comparing to future glory in Romans chapter 8. How can Paul say that? Doesn't that just nullify the human experience? No. 
You see, friends, if we never experience a nightmare, we can never long for it to become untrue. If we never know suffering, we can never long for something more. We can never long for glory. But if we long for glory, and we've seen glory in Jesus on the cross, who through his suffering brings life, if we've seen the glory of the cross, all of our suffering is engulfed in a resurrection hope, in a future life, in a future glory. The nightmare is swept up into it. See, if we see Jesus, if we see Jesus, the God who suffers with us and for us, all that is bad becomes untrue because it's swept up in a future glory. Finally, the hardworking farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Remember, this is an agricultural society, so the farmer image is easier for them to grasp than it is for us today, but here's what Paul is saying. Part of the reward of the farmer is actually the labor itself. So what Paul is getting at with this is, again, he's not being moralistic or promoting what we call works righteousness, where meaning that we can earn our salvation by impressing God with what we do and just simply trying to live life as, as being a good person. How would we ever know what, what was enough? So what Paul is saying is there is an ultimate glory, and that glory is not here fully, but it's here in part. It's here in part. How? When you see the fruit produced in and around our lives, through the suffering, through the trials, through the cross, through the forge. What Paul is really saying is that part of the Christian's glory is to learn to suffer, and we can do that because Christ suffered for us. Learning to suffer as Christ suffered, because through the nightmare, through the nightmare comes a greater longing for glory. The way to glory is through the cross. That's the pattern. Now, what's the power? Verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is commanding Timothy, notice, not to be strong, but to be strengthened. That's an imperative. That's a command, but it's passive, which means that something is doing the strengthening. What's that? It's the forge. But also, the power to embrace suffering is what? Verse 1, grace. It's grace. You see, the whole Christian life is one of divine grace. So Christianity is not a moral system. It's about the God of rescue who's come to us. It's about his grace. It's about his divine initiative to come to us. Grace says that we were so lost and helpless on our own that God graciously came to us to live the perfect life that you and I know that we can't. And he came to die a death that we know we deserve. We encounter God through his divine initiative. He comes to us. He makes the first move and he comes to us fully and completely in Jesus. And that, that grace can bring us into the very life of the triune God because of his grace. You see, the Christian life is this. We return to the forgiver for forgiveness when we know that our hearts are desiring things that we were never created to have, we were never created to trust in. And it's by God's grace, it's by God's grace that he does not look upon us in our weakness, but he looks upon us and he sees Christ. 
And he looks upon us with favor because of what Jesus has done for us. He forgives and he renews and he restores us into a real relationship with himself. See, the Christian life is about being swept up into the very life of the triune God. You see, if you're questioning the coldness of this and how the Bible talks about suffering, it may actually mean that you have not yet grasped, grasped the grace of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that it, it might be possible that you've not yet seen someone being willing to do something so costly, endure so much suffering to the point of death for you on your behalf because of you. And as a result, your life has not been radically changed and maybe because of that, you feel stuck. If you want to get unstuck, here's the first step. Consider the cost of God suffering for you and consider the resurrection and the glory that might await you if you received his grace. See, some of you are struggling because you want to do something. You're looking for a system, but Christianity gives you a person. But you're looking for a system and you want a checklist. You want to be moralistic. But grace says it's been done for you at great cost to the giver. When you give a gift to someone who thinks they deserve it, they're not thankful. Their life is not changed. But if someone who is desperate, someone who is desperate for something, their life depends on something, and is given a gift at great cost to the giver, your life would be radically changed by that, would it not? See, some of you struggle to grasp grace because you just think it's not fair. How can people not just get what they deserve? Where's the justice in that? But consider, consider the cost of there being no ultimate love and forgiveness in the universe. What is the basis for any type of humanitarian aid or service or goodness to anyone but yourself without there being an ultimate source of love? See, grace that is given at great cost to the giver says that there is an ultimate love because there's an ultimate giver. See, to grasp grace, you must see the indispensable gift of God giving a glorious hope and a glorious resurrection life through the person of Jesus. You see, what this does is it radically humbles us because we see that only because of God's sheer love and favor that we're able to embrace anything that comes our way. We can embrace anything that comes our way. Why? Because grace says, grace says, the Christian life says, You did not get into this to control God to do exactly what you wanted him to do. You can't do enough good to control God. We cannot do enough in our religious life to control him or to prove that we deserve his love and favor. You see, the Bible says that we were dead, which means that we need a profound cure. Medicine is not enough. We need a resurrection. And that only comes through God's unconditional favor and love towards sinners through the person, the person of Jesus who becomes exactly like us and he's worthy to give of himself at great cost. You see, that person, that person we need to see is Jesus and the power to endure 
is to see his grace for us. You see, Jesus can teach you to learn how to embrace suffering because it's only by his grace that we can be brought from death to life. And it's only by his grace that we can be preserved for future glory. It is God's grace that's the power to embrace whatever we face in this life. Christians can face anything. You say, how? Because of we have one who has suffered for us and faced our greatest fears for us, our greatest enemy for us. He faced death and overcame it. You see, we can hold on to an ultimate hope, an ultimate hope that everything sad will be untrue one day because there's a real resurrection, because there's one who is really resurrected. And the fruit of our suffering will be very life with the triune God, a life of infinite love and a real physical restoration that we've always longed for because the nightmare of hell shows us to long for that day. And when we see Jesus, when we see Jesus, we can face anything and we can learn to suffer because there's one who suffered for us because he loves us. He loves us so deeply that he's done what we cannot and died the death that we deserve. When we see Jesus, we see our true and ultimate hope, a resurrected life, the very life of God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, help us to receive the grace of God through Jesus, who took the form of a servant and served us so that we would not be left in death but brought into life. Thank you for rescuing and redeeming us through the work of the cross. Help us to endure the pains of this life as anguishing as they are and give us the grace to do so, O oh Lord. Help us to long for future glory. Sweep up the nightmare into your glory, O oh Lord. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we ask and pray. Amen.